0: Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Hey everyone, it's Courtney. I'm so glad you're joining us for this episode of In Doubt. This week's guest is author and trauma surgeon Catherine Butler, and she's recently written a book on end-of-life medical care, so that's what we'll be talking about. This topic doesn't come up in everyday conversation, but if I could just encourage you, though, and say that it is important, it really is. With personal experience with end-of-life medical care after losing a loved one to cancer, and in having to come face-to-face with some of the questions that Isaac asked Catherine, this is definitely something that we should be talking about, and it is relevant. For Christians, it's more than medicine when we reach the end of our lives, no matter when that is. As Isaac states, and as Catherine makes clear in her book, our lives are sacred and should be preserved when possible, but it isn't just a black and white issue. And some of you, like me, may have experience with end-of-life care, and I will say that as we're recording this episode, it did catch me off guard for a moment, but Catherine does such an incredible job at discussing this subject, and like I've said, I think this is something we as young adults need to think about, if only to prompt a few questions or one conversation, whether that's with our parents, our caregivers, our friends, or our kids. So in saying all that, I do hope that you enjoyed this episode.
1: Hey, this is Isaac from In Doubt. With me today on the show is trauma surgeon and author, Catherine Butler. Thanks so much for being with us today, Catherine.
2: Isaac, thank you so much for having me on.
1: Like we do with many of our interviewees, could you just share with us just a bit about who you are? And um, we love to know how uh, different people came to know Jesus as well. So yeah, just kind of share, share with us your testimony and, and who you are.
2: Sure. Uh, so I've been blessed with two very different seasons in life. <laughs> I am. Uh, my background is as a trauma and critical care surgeon at Mass General where I trained and then uh, was on the staff. And a few years ago, I was called away from that to administer to the needs of my family. And so now I homeschool my kids and I've fallen into a writing ministry, which was a very unexpected blessing. Uh, and Jesus actually brought me to himself through my work. So I was not raised a Christian. I grew up in a nominally Christian household where Christmas was much more about Santa Claus than Jesus. Uh, And I thought basically to be a Christian just meant you were a good person. (laughs) I didn't really ever think deeply about it. I didn't know the gospel. And then during my training, actually, it was being confronted with suffering in such a real and visceral and horrific way in the emergency room. There was one particular night where I had three young men who came into the emergency room who had all been assaulted and I couldn't save any of them. And it was really being confronted with the problem of evil and suffering that made me confront how flimsy my faith had been. And I actually struggled with severe depression to the point of suicidality and agnosticism thereafter. And about a year after I had this crisis I witnessed in the intensive care unit, uh, where I was training during my fellowship, uh, a recovery of a gentleman that I could not explain, that our medical advances and our protocols and our knowledge could not neatly tie up. And it occurred immediately after his wife had prayed in Jesus' name. And just opened my eyes to the fact, the truth, that there is a power so much greater than what we know or can imagine or understand. Uh, And it was from then studying the Gospels and the Book of Romans that the Lord just opened my eyes and my heart to the truth of Christ crucified and knowing that while we might not understand suffering in the moment, um, when we suffer it's not because God doesn't love us, because He sent His Son to suffer for us and saved us through that. So God has been so merciful to me and I'm just so grateful to know Christ and to be a part of His body.
1: Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that uh, with us, Catherine. And, and, you know, as you as you say that, uh, it just makes me ask the question. And, um, you know, obviously you've been around lots of various personnel and staff in, in, you know, places like the emergency room and things like that. Do you find that others, nurses and um, surgeons and doctors, um, work through some of those same questions? Because I can imagine you share the story with those three men and how, like, I feel like that would affect... Every, everybody. Um, do, do you find that some of your co-workers kind of worked through some of these questions or did you feel kind of alone in that?
2: In my particular experience with my part of the world and where I was encountering medicine, I think we all wrestle with the questions but I don't think anyone discusses them openly. Um, and, and that's pos- probably unique also to where I, I live and practice, because I'm in, you know, New England, which if you were to go to the Midwest part of the United States or the Bible Belt, I think people would be much more conversant about it. Uh, But I'm in an area where Christianity is a minority faith. Um, And so uh, there's a lot of silence, I think, about issues of faith. Um, And so I think we all struggle with these issues. We are all discouraged, we're all downtrodden, we're all wrestling. But in my experience, personally, there was not a lot of open dialogue about how faith ties into all the suffering that we're seeing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing sharing that with us. That's, mm-hmm. that's good. Um, Catherine, you've recently uh, written a book called Between Life and Death, a Gospel-Centered Guide to End-of-Life Medical Care. Now, that's, a, that's a, huge, it's a huge endeavor, it seems like, just from that title, uh, what you're getting there. So anyways, that's what our conversation is going to be revolved around. So if you're listening, that's kind of what it is about, a gospel-centered guide to end-of-life medical care. And if you are listening, we're obviously not going to be able to answer all the questions right now in this short time. But uh, hopefully through this conversation and through... What Catherine has to share with us, we'll we'll learn something to take with us from from this. But, anyways, Catherine, as a way to introduce us maybe to what your book is about, could you share with us maybe the issues or the problems? I'm not sure what the right maybe word is um, that you do address in your book. What is that thing, that answer or that discussion that you felt needed to you know have happen?
2: Yeah. So. I went into ICU care was really my focus and my area of expertise, and that's basically um, my job was to take care of people when they were their sickest from something that needed surgery to fix or were recovering from some kind of surgical process or procedure and were sufficiently ill that they needed ventilators and um, medication drips and dialysis and other really intensive, invasive machineries and procedures and techniques to keep them alive. And I went into it for the success stories. I loved partnering and coming alongside people when they were in their greatest need and being able to using this technology to usher them back to health and to bring them home and reunite them with their families. It was so incredibly gratifying and a wonderful way to love your neighbor. But However, what I found during my decade of work in the ICU was that the, these techniques and technologies that I just mentioned have tremendous potential to reunite families and bring people home when they are struggling with an illness or an accident or injury that's recoverable. But at the same time, what we've done with this technology is we've placed those who are dying, who are suffering from a disease that's not recoverable, who are at the end of life into some horrible situations where we actually prolong death. And we also place their loved ones who are then in the position of making decisions for them, such as, do I take them off the ventilator? Do I start dialysis? What's the right answer? Into some anguishing situations. And what I observed over time is that appropriately, those of us who are of the faith will turn to our faith and turn to the Bible to try to answer and navigate these hard issues. And we ask ourselves, what would God want? What's God's will? What does the Bible tell me in this situation? But, and as I alluded to this a little bit in my last comment, we clinicians do a really poor job of acknowledging that faith plays a role in these kinds of situations. And there's actually been a study in uh, Boston that looked at 75 terminally ill patients that did a survey looking at their spirituality and how it influenced their illness narrative. And what I found was that 86 percent of people said that spirituality was important to them, and the majority of these people actually identified as Christians, many of them Catholic. But when uh, they asked these patients, how often have, has your doctor referred them you to chaplaincy, the answer was 1 percent. There's also further data showing that when patients ask their doctors a question that has to do with faith, meaning, how do I navigate this based on my faith? The most common response given is not referring to chaplaincy, not saying, let's see how we can find the answer for you, not even if they're the same faith, praying with them, but to say nothing. No follow-up, no referral. We just strand people with some really, really hard questions. And so what I wanted to do with this book was to provide people a look at how do we understand issues of life and death and suffering in our current era where technology is so confusing, and also to try to tease apart when these technologies help and when they can hurt, and when giving a, using a ventilator will help to preserve life and bring someone home, or when it can actually prolong death and suffering, and to try to help Give some people some kind of clarity and discernment so they have a set of principles or tools to use when they're in these situations.
1: yeah, then that's so good. As I was kind of reading through your introduction and first chapter, I was just thinking like this is so this is such a specific uh, look at a very specific situation, and I'm so thankful for that because um, as we'll get to this question a little bit later on um, I mean, as our listeners are younger people, we you know a lot of us haven't really thought about some of these things, and it's so essential that we think about them now um, because I mean, we could be there tomorrow or a family member or a friend could be. So it's so essential that we do. so thank you uh, for that. But you know, I want to quote something you wrote in your introduction, and then maybe you can elaborate on a little bit. And I know that you've already there'll be some overlap, so if you need to just rephrase something that you've already said, that's totally fine too. Um, you you say this over the course of that decade, which you already mentioned uh, of working, training, and being in trauma. You said I had the I had the privilege of partnering with people during their most vulnerable moments, and I loathed the disconnect between the technical details that I laid out and the pain tearing them. Apart. So, what do you mean by that disconnect?
2: Yeah, it's just, it's just what I said that people are often wrestling with issues of how does the, how does faith um, come into play when I'm trying to decide whether or not to keep my loved one on a ventilator? Because really, it goes back very much so to our, our faith because it's dealing with life and death, and and we can tend sometimes to cling to one principle from the Bible and say, well, the Bible teaches me that I have to preserve life, so I'm going to do everything at all costs. Right. And we as a a clinician can sit down and I can tell you the ins and outs of um, the statistics and the prognosis and everything. But I really have to understand where is your faith influencing you in your response here? And I think that because we don't as clinicians talk about faith because we feel that we need to be objective and we then also fail people in not supporting them to understand their narrative and understand the lens through which they're trying to to. Grapple with these big questions. Um, so that my hope was to try to bridge that disconnect by saying, okay, well, how do we actually look at this technology from what the Bible teaches us about uh, sanctity of life, about the fact that God is sovereign over our life and death, about the fact that we're called to love one another as Christ loved us? Those those principles all come into play, and overarching over all of them is the hope that we have in Christ, which also changes our view of death and gives us a hope that surpasses death. And I think that the the technology that we're dealing with and the terminology is so convoluted and foreign to the layperson that it is impossible for them to understand it and understand how these principles play into that in the moment when they're scared and they're worried for a mom or a dad or a spouse or sibling that is near death and they're grieving, well, what do I do? It's so hard for them to untangle all of this on their own.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, let's. You kind of mentioned the Bible there and some of those questions about God's sovereignty. So let's let's jump into that. I'll I'll quote two things that you said, and then I'll ask this question. So, um, some other quotes you say: Medical progress over the last fifty years has equipped doctors with technologies that, under the right circumstances, can save lives, but also transmute death from a finite event into a prolonged and painful process. You've already talked about that a bit. And then you say, death now commonly occurs and fits and starts in a slow, confusing fragmentation of a life. And then you write, God's perfect timing seems less distinct when machinery blurs the boundaries of life and death. I mean, just thinking about those, it's like, there's a lot to think about uh, in, these really, in these really well-written uh, sentences, Catherine. So h- how have you, as a Bible-believing Christian then, who believes in God's, you know, good sovereignty over all things. How do you understand truths um, throughout the scripture? But I'll just provide one example, like Psalm 139, 16, that says, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. So we're getting this idea that God knows. And yet here we have these these medical machines that seem to kind of allow, give us the ability to to choose. So how how do we work through that?
2: I I think that ultimately— I know, ultimately. It's still within God's hands. God still has sovereignty over our lives. Our lives belong to Him. I think what's happened over the past 50-plus years, though, as ICU care has really come to the forefront, is that it's less obvious to us. So people will be dying, but we can't tell. And, and what I mean by this is that if you were to stand at the bedside of someone in the ICU, if you're, and you're a lay person. You cannot tell from the doorway whether or not the person in that bed is on the verge of recovery or is spiraling towards their death because they can both have a ventilator. They'll both have an IV pole with arrays of pumps and infusions going. They might have a dialysis machine. And it's only if you understand the disease process at work and have someone to guide you through how things are going? Meaning, is that process getting better or worse? And you only know that by being able to interpret the lab values and the numbers, that you have an understanding of: are, is all this that we're doing just slowing down the process of dying? But death is still gripping this person, or is it actually ushering them back to life? And and that 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 process there. So. God's sovereign over all of that, so if that person is dying, us having those machines going might delay things for a little while, but they're still dying, you know, and and what's happened, though, is that because dying and death is no longer a part of our daily experience, and I say that because, you know, a hundred years ago, the most common place for people to die was at home, and it was at home among family members and clergy, and death was something that was familiar to families. It was abhorrent. People didn't like it, obviously, but it was familiar. Now we're in a situation when the majority of us will actually die in an institution, in a hospital, in a nursing home, Uh, even though most of us still want to die at home. uh, Only about 25 to 40 percent, depending on the survey, actually do. And so we don't see it day to day. It's so far removed from us and from our understanding. And then, it, then when we actually finally confront it, it's usually in the setting of making decisions for a loved one. And we see it surrounded by technology that we don't understand in a vocabulary that defies our comprehension. And we can't recognize it for what it is. You know, so so that's, that's what I mean in terms of um, not being able to see that. That death is at hand, and God's still sovereign over this. We can't, might not be able to change the trajectory, but oftentimes we can't see that that's the case.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I was just reminded uh, earlier uh, today, actually listening to uh, another podcast, I was just reminded of the just the, the harmonious compatibility between the decisions that we make, whether they're good ones or bad ones, and God's sovereignty— And this other uh, fellow on the podcast just reminded me by saying that, you know, the whole idea of God's sovereignty and our free will, they are friends and you don't have to try to reconcile them. Um, And that's just such an essential truth to hold on to, even if we can't really quite make it make sense in our minds. We have to believe that, especially, I would imagine, in times when you have to make some big decisions, either as a doctor or as a, you know, a family member or a friend of someone who's in those situations. So uh, I do appreciate that, Catherine. Um, You you, you say then, here's the last quote that I'll quote, I won't give away your whole book, don't worry. Um, (laughs) But another quote I have here is, to honor God in the bleak setting of the ICU, we must clarify the expanse between life and death that our medical advances have blurred. So this idea of clarifying it. So I, I don't know if maybe you've already touched on this. When you're talking about clarifying, are you just saying that you want to help the kind of people that don't understand any of the machinery or anything that's going on? Is that what you mean by clarity here?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And specifically what I would hope for people to understand is that we ask the wrong questions oftentimes when we're confronted with these situations, because when we think about, i say a ventilator and I'm using that as the, the most obvious, because that's what people think of when they think about being on machines We often think in terms of black and white, yes or no responses, I want to be on a ventilator or I never would want to be, and that's really the wrong question because what a ventilator does is it often does not cure us. The ventilator buys time until we can fix the underlying problem. So what do I mean by that? If I have failing lungs from pneumonia, and it's pneumonia that's from a common bacterium in the community. I might require the ventilator for a day or two to support my breathing, but they give me antibiotics to treat the pneumonia, the pneumonia is resolved, I'll come off the ventilator in a few days, and I'm likely to go home, right? In that scenario, that ventilator was a vehicle towards recovery, right? It helps to preserve life. The situation is going to be very different if I am in my 80s with end-stage emphysema metastatic lung cancer, and then I develop a fungal pneumonia, which is much more difficult to treat. In that situation, that mechanical ventilator, that breathing machine, is likely to be a permanent fixture or to just prolong my death. And so I think when I talk about clarifying these issues, I think it's important that we we just focus on what are these technologies doing. They're actually not curative, they're supportive. They're meant to help us, and the real question we need to ask is, under what circumstances am I okay accepting this? And for the Christian, it usually is that if it's recoverable, if the underlying illness that's making me sick is recoverable, yeah, this is is worth me pursuing oftentimes. If however, I'm near death and they can't cure what's making me sick, then these kinds of technologies have the potential to prolong death and incur suffering. And so that's what I mean in terms of clarity is that I think oftentimes we're asking the wrong questions when we consider these end of life issues.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's really good. And and I think from even what you're just saying there, it sounds like you're not going, you haven't written a book about a black and white, you know, answer on what do we do in this situation? You say this or not this, it's a situational thing. And, and let me just try to, Uh, think of an example here. Say I'm I'm much older, say I'm in my 70s or my 80s, and uh, the doctors have been trying to figure out what's wrong with me, and they put me on some life-preserving technology or medical uh, units to keep me going. Um, But if the doctors, say, are unclear as to what exactly is going on, um, I'm much older, then how would someone like you counsel, let's say, my son or my grandson or someone... Um, or my wife at that time to to think through this? If it just seems foggy, if the doctors don't quite know, because I'm sure there's lots of times when, I mean, you're a doctor, maybe maybe I'm wrong, but I would imagine there's lots of times where things can't really be seen exactly uh, clearly what is going on. H- how do we work through that uh, with our faith?
2: Yeah, that that's a, a great question, Isaac. And it, it brings up some really important points. I'm going to to try to answer it, I'm going to backtrack a little bit and just try to give some overarching principles biblically. There are there are four main things that I think come into play in end-of-life scenarios. And the first is the fact that our mortal life is sacred, that it's a gift from God, that we're to preserve it when possible. And this is the principle that compels us to advocate for the unborn, that prompts us to be opposed um, to physician-assisted suicide, really to preserve life when possible. And in that situation, that... That principle calls us to, when it's very clear that that recovery is possible, to pursue these kinds of treatments. Then there's the other end, which is also a bit more stark, which is saying, uh, as you just said, God is sovereign over our life and death, and there will be a time when it's clear that we have no further cure for an underlying process, and in that kind of situation, these kinds of technologies will only prolong death and suffering without getting people home or getting people recovered then it comes this gray area like you're talking about where doctors aren't sure or maybe there actually is a potential treatment but it's not going to bring about full recovery it's going to instead bring about some improvement but with disability maybe we'll be able to get people out of the hospital but they'll be ventilator dependent at home maybe we you know we recover but they are going to be tube feed dependent for the rest of their lives or they're not going to be able to walk on their own or they're going to need the assistance of a family member for the rest of their lives, or they're going to be on dialysis, right? And these are the kinds of situations where it gets murky, and it's really the key question to ask is suffering. Because we do as, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we're called to have mercy upon others and to care and be compassionate for those who are afflicted. And so suffering is something that's very subjective, and this is where it's important to talk with loved ones ahead of time because we never want to think about these issues but this is really where it's so key because what is bearable to me might not be to someone else and and what i can endure as long as i for instance i'll give you an example i had this one woman who had been through just this horrible horrible course where she was in the icu for months and months and developed ulcers on her back she could barely walk and we, her family, said, oh, my goodness, she's suffering. But when we sat down with her, what, what mattered to her most, where she felt that she was living the life that God had given her to steward and living it well, was being able to sit with her family and watch TV and talk with them about it. And that was, that was meaningful to her. So it didn't matter to her that she was going through all this pain. That was meaningful. you know. Others will say, I, I can't imagine having to be dependent because I would be so crushed by that kind of dependency. You know, it's going to be different for every person. So it's really important to try to tease out what would incur too much suffering that would crush us. Because God can refine us through suffering, but He doesn't demand that we endure suffering for no purpose. Um, and so those are the questions I think that are really important to try to, those conversations to have ahead of time with loved ones is, what is that that makes life meaningful for you? What are the moments that you've Cherish What are the things that you've needed to be able to fill out your call to serve God, to know Him, to enjoy him? You know, is it that you need to be able to read the Bible? Do you need to be able to converse with others? what what is essential? Um, yeah. yeah no, I that's, hope that answers the question. <laughs> no, it does. Yeah,
1: no, that's that's very helpful. There's a lot to think about there. So that's, that's good, Catherine. Um, and perhaps some of what you said will also flow into this next uh, question here. Uh, but how would you then now counsel Christian young adults who, you know, the last thing on their mind probably is end-of-life medical care, at least if they are um, totally healthy and totally fine, or if there's no family member or friends uh, around them that are suffering with this? Um, and I even ask, and this might come across as weird, but what can we even do today to prepare our hearts for, you know, Christ-like behavior in this area of uh, -of end-of-life medical care.
2: Absolutely. I would say the, the key and most important thing to realize is that we are going to be confronting this first and foremost as advocates for those we love. Uh, because we found that only 25% of people across them speaking in U.S. terms, I'm sorry, in Canada, but in the U.S. have uh, advanced directive. So an advanced directive is a document stating what you will or will not accept in the hospital if you can't speak for yourself. However, 75% of people require someone to make decisions for them at the end of life because they're incapacitated, either because Disease has made them delirious and they're not able to think clearly or because they're on a breathing machine and they're not able to speak. So there's a huge burden on loved ones next of kin who are often then in the position, if there's no advance directive or even if there is, to try to figure out what a loved one would want. And these decisions are really hard to make if you have not had a discussion with a loved one ahead of time. They're hard to make even if you have had these discussions. But if you have no guidance whatsoever, we actually have data to back this up saying that people who make decisions for loved ones in the ICU at the end of their lives suffer high rates of depression afterwards, higher rates of complicated grief, even post-traumatic stress disorder. It is a very heavy burden. And if we at least have the conversations with those we love, we have the peace to say, this was horrible. I miss him or her, but at least I know that she would have been okay with what I decided. And and so it's really crucial. As much as we don't want to think about this, it is a huge source of solace for you as the one making the decisions. And it's also incredibly honoring for the one you're making decisions for, that you're acknowledging that as an image bearer of God, They're the stewards of their own lives and you're trying to honor what they would say when they no longer have a voice. That's an incredibly rich way to love your neighbor in a time of need. You know, and so I would say as much as we don't want to talk about this, we don't think it's relevant, it will come upon all of us. And it's really crucial, I think, to have those hard discussions, to talk to your mom or dad. Ask them to go through a living will with you and say, what would you have me do? And how can I honor you when the time comes?
1: Yeah, that's so good. And that's so practical as well. Um, I, I love that. So thank you, Catherine. The last kind of question that uh, about this conversation, how does the gospel play a role in end of life medical care? So obviously that's right in your title. So how how do we kind of think about the gospel in terms of this?
2: Yeah, I think that the gospel is really what provides us hope to buoy us through. Because these kinds of scenarios can be so crushing, and you can deal with such remorse and guilt and uncertainty. But the one hope that we have is knowing that this is not the end. That whatever the outcome, through Christ we are all healed. That He is, has triumphed over death. and the title for the book was actually inspired by Romans 8 verses 38 to 39 because neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor anything, not even a ventilator, not even dialysis can wrench us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus and if we keep that and cling to that I think it can give us a well of solace from which to draw during these horrific situations.
1: Yeah. No, that's so good, Catherine. As we finish this conversation, I have just sort of shift the conversation a little bit from what we've talked about, because I think this is important and take advantage of a, a Christian surgeon, a Christian doctor talking to us. Would you just take a moment to speak to those listening who are committed Christians and they're interested in, maybe they're even in school for a medical profession? I'm just wondering if you could just give some wisdom and encouragement to them. Because uh, they're going to be going into a uh, a career that uh, it's going to be lots of different beliefs, lots of different faiths, and you're going to be you know right up uh, up against death and life. Um, so anyways what what are, what's some wisdom and, and some advice you can give to Christians looking into this?
2: Yeah, I would say first, um thank you because when you really think about it, medicine is just such a beautiful way to live out our our call to be Christ's disciples because it's a way to love one another as He loved us and to serve and to have mercy upon others, all of which encapsulates what Christ has done for us. Um, What I would caution or encourage, I'm not sure which the right word is, uh, after having spoken over the past few years to many who are also trying to pursue this vocation but finding significant challenges as a believer in the field. I would just encourage you to try to maintain the practices that you need to uphold to remain in close communion with the Lord. And what do I mean by that? Is that just as you said, Isaac, there are moments when you'll be challenged, and there are many moments when you'll be challenged because you'll be encountering or seeing things that are upsetting and bring you face-to-face with life and death. Uh, You'll be a witness to suffering. You're also going to be steeped in a system that is secular. Sometimes the values will conflict with your own. Very often, it will challenge your own values because the medical profession is so cutthroat and so competitive that oftentimes it prioritizes you placing yourself above others and being the best. And being the best not to be a good steward of God's gifts, but being the best for your own sense of idolatry. And it's a really hard um, line to toe between excellence because you want to be a good steward of God's gifts and excellence because you feel the need to be a best to be the best to be competitive. Um, so I would say, and it's very hard, too, because there's very little time oftentimes to attend church, to engage in the usual spiritual disciplines that help to keep you uplifted in your faith. So I would say pick one or two very key things because you're not going to be able to attend church every Sunday. But if it's that you pray every morning when you get up and you give your first hours to God and you read a passage from the Bible, do it and don't give that up. Just choose something that will keep you nourished and with your eyes still set heavenward while you're mired in something that can be very, very challenging.
1: Yeah, no, that's so good. So thank you, Catherine, for for adding that on there. We really appreciate that. So anyways, that wraps up our conversation. So let me just say thank you. And I'm sure our listeners um, are thanking you as well for taking the time to talk with us about this important subject. Thanks, Catherine.
0: Thank you so much. For me, I think this was a really good time to reflect on the questions that Catherine gave towards the end. What would incur too much suffering? What is meaningful to me? And what is essential in my relationship to God? For some, this is a difficult conversation, but trust me when I say that it's worth it. If you'd like to read or buy Catherine's book, we'll have the link available on our website. Check back with us next week for a brand new episode where we'll be talking to Andy Steiger about the future of apologetics. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes and Spotify or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.